Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are in the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about palliative care with Dr. Andrew Putnam. Dr. Putnam is an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Andrew, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. I went to medical school thinking I wanted to be a, a small-town country doctor and went to residency and found out that I like talking to patients too much to be able to do that because it's you don't allow enough a lot of time for uh, family doctors. So I found this new specialty called palliative care um, and uh, have been doing that ever since. So I'm a palliative care physician at Yale. And we do pain and symptom management. We do goals of care conversations. Um, uh, we help other physicians take care of their patients. We're an, we're an extra layer of support. So, you know, we've had people on this show and we've talked previously about palliative care. But, you know, for those who may be unaware, tell us a little bit more about what exactly palliative care is. Because... It seems to me that there is sometimes some confusion around the term, right? Some people think it means pain and symptom management. Some people think it means end-of-life hospice care. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what your definition of palliative care is? Oh, I'd be glad to. Thank you. Um, I guess part of the, the confusion stems that, the actu that actually the official title of my medical specialty is hospice and palliative medicine put together. But so the way I think about it is hospice is part of palliative medicine, but a small part. So some of the patients I see are end of life, but some of the patients I see are very early in their uh, disease trajectory. I got called a couple weeks ago by an oncologist saying, I've got this patient who I'd like to treat with chemotherapy. However, his pain is so bad that he's in bed all the time. Can you, Dr. Putnam, please come and help me get his pain under control so that I can treat this patient? So, and there's a fair bit of that where we treat the, the uh, symptoms caused by the disease. We treat the symptoms caused by uh, the treatments. But, yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's, it is confusing. A few weeks ago, I walked into a patient's room in the hospital, said I'm from palliative care, and the patient started to cry. Oh, my goodness. So we do end of life, but in my, in my practice, probably about 20, 15 to 20% is hospice. And 80% or so is people much earlier in their disease, and I'm trying to help them get treated. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of the issue is that there are many people who do parts and parcels of the same thing. So, for example, the story that you told earlier about, you know, treating a patient who has pain so that you could get the pain under control so that he could be treated with chemotherapy, some people would think that that sh patient should have been referred to a pain service or an anesthesia service. Um, 
can you tell us kind of about the overlap that exists between palliative care and a number of other specialties? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I guess, so palliative medicine is sort of the, well, I'm part of a cancer center. So if a patient has cancer, the oncologist treats the cancer. And some of the things the oncologist does may make the patient not feel so great, losing their hair, nausea, you know, people hear about this, but they're treating the cancer. So you do that. Palliative medicine is the, the other side of the coin, I guess. I don't do anything about the cancer. My job is just to make the patient feel better. And whether that's pain and symptom management, discussions, um, we do a lot of talking with patients about how to you know, approach their disease. We give a lot of support. Um, so if a patient has pain, if they go to anesthesia, anesthesia, they will, if they can treat the pain, they'll usually use needles or some nerve block, something like that, which I don't do. So sometimes we do send people who have specific needs to them. But for a pain service, palliative medicine, what uh, one big part of our job is to take the patient and take all the different parts, the cancer, the lungs, the heart, all the different parts that may be treated and put it together to make the person. And we treat the person. Uh, my team and I, our job is to help the patient get through what's going on. So pain is one thing that we do, but it's only part. So tell us more about the other parts. I mean, you mentioned you and your team, and I think that's one of the big things about palliative care is that it is this multidisciplinary team that has many different parts. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, I'd be glad to. Thank you. So medical... Uh, in much of medicine, it's usually the doctor who's at the, the top and everyone else is designed, their job is to support the doctor. Um, in palliative medicine, it's very different. The basic unit of palliative care is four people, a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, and a chaplain. And to be a true palliative care group, all four of those need to be present. And the reason is that we all approach the person, the patient, in different ways. We have different training and we focus on different aspects of the patient's suffering. So, for example, I guess about a year ago, palliative medicine, palliative care got consulted to a patient. And when I went to talk with him, his biggest problem was the, su the suffering he was going through of why is God doing this to me? And that was as I said, the main point of his suffering. And I can talk to him a little bit about that, but I very quickly got my chaplain involved because this was a type of suffering and my chaplain is much better trained to treat that kind of suffering than I am. Same with social worker and nurse. Their training is different. They come at the person in a different way and often they are able to do things that I am not able to because my training is different. In addition, on our team, we have a psychologist, we have a pharmacist, we have an art therapist. We try and treat the patient's total suffering in as many different ways as is necessary. And being part of Yale, we also have nutritionists, integrative medicine specialists, 
And there are others who we can call, as you asked earlier about, like anesthesia pain, if those specialties would be helpful. And so it sounds like this is really, you know, quite remarkable, right? Because regardless of what the patient's suffering comes from, whether it's a a spiritual existential crisis, whether it is financial toxicity, whether it is uh, pain, whether it is psychological distress, there's somebody on your team who's able to help that patient. And the load doesn't fall on the treating physician. And similarly, the load doesn't fall on the patient. So that sounds like that's just an incredible resource. But as you say, this is something that you have at a large academic center like Yale. Um, What do you do if you're in the community and maybe you are or you know a, a cancer patient who may be suffering, and you want to access palliative care. How, how do you do that? Um, also a good question. So we are a relatively new specialty in that we've only been a recognized specialty since about 2007. And so many physicians uh, and nurses still don't know what we do. It's uh, It's getting less common, but it still happens where uh, it's suggested to send a patient uh, for a palliative care consult, and the response is, oh, no, it's much too early. Patient isn't dying yet. So the best way to get us involved, though, is for the patient to ask the doctor, um, whether it's a, a cardiologist or their lung doctor or an oncologist. Any of these certainly can have access to help from palliative care, especially as an inpatient when they're in the hospital. So asking for it. The, you know, the hope is that the doctor will understand that it's you know, appropriate at this time and they will call us. But patients often need to ask. Doctors more and more are thinking about us as a helpful extra layer of support for them, but it's still it still is helpful if the patient asks. Is palliative care available on an outpatient basis? I mean, it sounds wonderful when you're in the hospital, but, you know, for many oncology patients, they are, you know, at one point or another, let out of the hospital. And for them, I can imagine that part of it gets even more burdensome because now they may feel like they are all alone having to deal with this with their family at home. Um, is there are there resources for outpatient palliative care? Yes, there certainly are. Um, for cancer patients, we have a clinic in Smilo uh, in New Haven, but also in North Haven and other uh, Smilo oncology clinics around this part of the state. And so uh, we can have regular meetings with patients, and they can. Uh, avail themselves of telephone calls to us if they're home and their pain is worse and they need help quickly. And if people aren't at Yale and they're in the community, can they do the same kind of thing? Talk to their doctor and see if there's outpatient palliative care that they might be able to avail themselves of? Yes, um, definitely ask the oncologist because many of the uh, sites now have uh, palliative care available at that site. And if not, 
maybe they can see a physician or a, at a different site. You know, one of the questions that comes up is, it sounds like such a tremendous resource, right? You've got integrative oncology, you've got art therapy, you've got all of these people. Um, some people might be looking at this saying, wow, that sounds like such a tremendous resource and certainly an extra layer of support, but it's not free. And at a time when people are facing really expensive therapies and the financial toxicity associated with that, one may wonder, is palliative care covered by insurance? Great question. Yes, insurance covers us. We are paid basically the same way that the oncologist is. Um, I don't know of any insurance. There may be some. But I don't know of any insurance that is paying the oncologist different from palliative care. There usually is some sort of, um, you know, payment at the beginning, um, but it's uh, the payment is the same. Insurance does pay for us. Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. And on the other side, we'll learn more about palliative care with my guest, Dr. Andrew Putnam. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their one-of-a-kind sexuality, intimacy, and menopause program combines medical and psychological interventions for women who experience sexual dysfunction after cancer. SmiloCancerHospital.org There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine. Quitting smoking is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment as it's been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. All treatment components are evidence-based, and patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Andrew Putnam. We're talking about palliative care and pain and symptom management for cancer patients. And while we talked a lot prior to the break about how palliative care is really an extra layer of support for cancer patients, the next question I have for you, Andrew, is what about the caregivers? What about the family? Because so often they carry quite a bit of the load. Um, can you talk a little bit about the support that you can offer them? Great question. Family is so crucial to a patient's care. Um, all, I think, oncologists, palliative care doctors, certainly we want a caregiver to come with the patient to their meetings with their doctors when possible. Um, they are what I, can, what I think of as the external brain. They're the person who's there to remember things, to write things down. And this is very important because patients often have a tough time remembering everything that's going on given the medications they're given and given the amount of information that patients are given 
Also at home, they're crucial to the care at home. I tell caregivers that, you know, if you, if you don't rest, if you don't take care of yourself, then you're not going to be able to do the best job you can taking care of your, of your loved one. And so their care is going to suffer. So sadly, many caregivers feel that they have to be there all the time, 24-7 um, to do it. And no, they need self-care as well. Um, but it's also important for the patient to understand how important the caregiver is and also how much suffering they're going through. It's very clear that a patient, and we know we can see this, a patient is suffering when they have the disease, when they get treatment, and how much suffering they go through. But what's really important for the patient and the medical team to understand is that the caregiver is also suffering. <laughs> the example I use when I talk to uh, patients and caregivers is, you know, in, in the B movies, the old B movies, when they capture the professor who has the secret formula, they usually don't torture him. They torture his family, his kids, his wife, because watching someone you love suffer is in many ways more difficult than suffering yourself. So we support the family. We have groups uh, to help family members. We have groups for patients as well. But uh, it, I can't say enough about how important the caregiver and the family is in the care of a patient. Yeah. I mean, I, I, think, I think that goes hand in hand with why caregivers often suffer burnout, because they know that the patient can see that they are suffering and they don't want to appear as though they're suffering because they know that that will exacerbate the patient's suffering and the patient's already suffering with cancer. So they don't want to make it worse. And so the caregiver tends to take on more to show that, you know what, this is okay. I've got it. When in fact, you know, they, they may need a bit of self-care themselves. Yes, caregiver burnout is such an important topic and one that is, you know, not thought about very much. But yes, the the caregiver needs self-care. They need some time to be able to go out and do something for themselves, to take their mind off what's going on when possible. Um, patients and patients and caregivers, both of them have thoughts about things that they don't want to tell the other. Both of them have fears about what might happen, and often they're the same fears. So for patients and caregivers, I usually encourage them to talk with each other about what's going on. Because yes, it's fine for the caregiver to try and appear totally strong and able to do things. And Frankly, if it's a hospice patient and near the end of life, that's possible. But for by far more patients, it's a much longer time that they're going to be in treatment, they're going to need care. And so if it's not a sprint, the caregiver has to take care of him or herself as well. Yeah. And the other thing I think too is that for some patients, um, given a diagnosis, and I, I know I'm thinking of a particular uh, friend of mine whose husband 
was fairly young in his early 50s with a, a really poorly differentiated sarcoma and a, a bad prognosis, but was left in a bit of denial, like this can't possibly be happening. And can you talk a little bit about how palliative care can kind of help patients and caregivers accept a diagnosis? Um, because I think that that's one of the the most important things. You can't really treat what you can't accept. Well, that's a really good point. Um, first, I would say that you know, different from the, the person you said, often people who we think are in denial aren't in denial in that Many patients I ask to see because they say, oh, they're, you know, they're not facing their disease, they're not in denial. And when I go and talk with them, the patient says, oh, no, doc, I know what's going on. I've got this cancer. I have to get treated. If I don't, it's going to kill me. I have it. But I'm trying to be positive. I'm trying to do the very best I can and you know, go at this disease in a really active way and hoping and thinking about beating it. And that's not denial. For the patients, however, who really can't accept that they have it, then you know, trying to beat them over the head to get them to understand that isn't really going to make a huge difference. And so trying to work with them gently in a way to, you know, with open-ended questions when we see them, to try and get them to at least think about what's happening with their bodies and how important it can be to get treatment for their family, et cetera. But I certainly have some patients who have, who've ended up dying eventually and still couldn't face it. Yeah. Um, or they can't, it's hard. they can't accept the prognosis, you know? Uh, and, um, and sometimes you know, when faced with a, a really poor prognosis, it, you know, it is absolutely uh, something uh, to uh, to laud, um, to try to fight a disease. And, and certainly we have many uh, therapies coming down the pike and, and clinical trials, which can certainly be helpful. But at the same time, at given a, a certain diagnosis at a certain time point, I find that patients need to accept the eventualities as they are unfolding. And sometimes that can be really hard, both for patients and for caregivers. Can you talk about how you address that in terms of end of life and getting people to kind of come to terms with that? Well, I guess where I start and I will often say this to patients, is that the, the dirty secret of medicine is that none of us get out of here alive. Everybody, at least in 2022, with no fountain of youth that I know of, everybody is going to die one day. And so the question is not if, the question is how and when. And, you know, how is it going to be at the end? And so... I start from there and say, okay, we have an uncertain amount of time for that you're going to be alive. I have no idea. It could be days, could be weeks, could be months, 
could be years. That's possible. I'd be surprised, but it's certainly possible. And so how are we going to give you the best quality of life that you can have during this uncertain amount of time? And it's hard because we don't know. We don't know how long someone's going to live. But, you know, I'm, I could die right now from a heart attack while I'm talking to you. It's certainly possible. So working with patients to say, we're, we, can't, we can't stop you from dying, but the oncologist is pushing, trying to push your life as long as possible. And if there isn't more treatment and it is a hospice situation, then working with the patient again for however long they're going to live to make them as comfortable as they can and to help them do whatever they need to do before the end of their life. Yeah. And talk a little bit about how you help the family members and the caregivers with that, because I think that that's the other piece that is really tragic, right? Is that watching somebody that you love pass away is almost worse than passing away yourself sometimes. It certainly can be. Um, you know, you were talking or I, we were both talking about patients not being able to face their disease. Well, there's all, there are also caregivers and families who can't really face that their loved one is sick and that they have a cancer that they're probably going to die from. And so, again, having groups, I, I strongly recommend going to a group of people who have loved ones who have a similar disease or the same disease, lung cancer or liver cancer, in order to compare notes with other people. And the talking about it can help. It can help with understanding what's going on. It can really help knowing that there are other people who are going through the same thing. You're not alone. There are, there are others. Um, but it can be really hard. And that makes it more hard on the patient if the family and caregiver can't understand what's going to happen. Yeah. We don't want to. But, yeah. Um, we, our social worker, chaplain, we all try and support the person while gently helping them come to an understanding. Yeah. The other situation, I think, which is particularly tragic is the patient who doesn't have family. What do you do in that circumstance? We talked about how important having caregivers and, and loved ones and family with you as you go through cancer is. Talk about what do you do in the situation where somebody doesn't have that that support? Oh, that is that can be tragic. Um, well, first, I guess we try and figure out if there really is no family, and often it's whoever the the best person is in our team for talking with the patient about this. Sometimes there are children, there are adult children but they have you know, not talked in 10 years or something like that. And so there are times when there actually is family and we try and encourage them to talk to the family and say, this is what's going on. If necessary, I'm sorry for what I did. And trying to encourage that person to come and be part of, you know, to be a caregiver or to at least to take part in the rest of the person's life. That is possible. If there are no 
really nobody in the family. Everyone has already died or only children and no parents left. Um, again, support, trying to figure out how best to take care of this person. At the beginning and for much of it, they may be fine. Um, they're able to live on their own. But when they're not able to anymore, when they're getting weak, if they're going to die, uh, that's when we get hospice involved and with them hopefully try and figure out what is possible. How do we make sure that this person gets the best care that we can give them, even though there isn't a family member? Dr. Andrew Putnam is an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.